Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. Today, I'm talking to Krista Lynn Harrison, an assistant professor of geriatrics and health policy at the University of California, San Francisco. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Harrison writes about her stepfather's experience with the hospice care system at the end of his life and how the model ultimately failed their family and how it fails other patients who die more slowly than expected. Hospice is meant to optimize quality of life and minimize sources of distress at the end of life. In theory, enrollees are entitled to an unlimited number of days of hospice care, though they have to be recertified after six months. But in practice, some patients end up discharged alive rather than re-enrolled, which is what happened to Harrison's stepfather. After discharge, her stepfather's health soon declined again, and he died nearly eight months after his initial hospice admission. Krista, you're actually a former hospice administrator, so you knew the promise of what hospice could provide. What were some ways that your stepfather's experience exposed the cracks in the system for you? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I knew that it, from my research that it was challenging for people to guess the life expectancies of people with neurodegenerative illnesses. And the way the current Medicare hospice benefit is structured really requires you to be able to estimate a, a six-month prognosis. And so if people have a pretty quick decline then that's more usual experience for hospice providers. With my stepfather, he was admitted to hospice right after a hospitalization, and we weren't sure which way things were going to head, if he was going to continue his trajectory of decline, or if, as what happened, he started to improve for a bit, regain some strength, even if he was still fundamentally dying because of the, the neurodegenerative processes. I also know that a hospice is very good when pain is a, a primary symptom, but that really wasn't his primary symptom. It was more breathing problems, which is where we have a more limited set of, of resources to manage those symptoms. And if you're dealing with them for a longer period of time, that's, that's something that uh, hospice has less experience with, or at least has fewer tools that are commonly used and certainly not over the time frame that, that we were needing them. And in writing this essay, what became clear to you about the hospice care system in the U.S.? What did you come away from this feeling absolutely needs to happen and why? Yeah, so you know, it's important to say here that I have the utmost respect for my hospice clinical colleagues. I think the vast majority of individuals are really trying to do the best things for the patients in front of them and, and trying to make the best of a system that's not quite keeping up with what is best for patients and family. But hospice needs ways to financially support a broader array of the palliative treatments that are currently being used. They need ways to provide help with all the functional needs that some patients like my stepfather had, help bathing, help walking around the house. Those are available to some patients up to five, five times a day, but generally people have to pay out of pocket for the types of functional supports they need. And that is also not 
typically what the goals of care of patients are. And so it's not something that the interdisciplinary team is sort of oriented to maintaining function. And then finally, uh, caregivers do a massive amount of work under the existing hospice model. And if you are like my mother working far away from family or living far away from family, you've got some friends nearby, but you, you don't have a massive network of support and you don't have massive resources to be able to pay to, to purchase more support. That, that's a really challenging circumstance. And I think a lot of the hospice organizations would really like to be able to do things differently, would like to be able to have a little more flexibility in how they think about their uh, panel of patients that they care for and being able to care for a a wider array of people with functional needs. But to be able to do that is going to require some changes to the way the payment mechanisms under the Medicare hospice benefit, how, how those currently function. Krista, thank you for joining us today. And now here's Krista Harrison reading her essay, The Hidden Curriculum of Hospice, Die Fast, Not Slow. I lost my faith in hospice care when my stepfather died. As a former hospice administrator and researcher in geriatrics and palliative care, I knew the ambition of hospice, the promise of what it could be. But our experience illustrated how hospice has become care for people dying fast, not for those trying to live well while dying slow. On the first day of February in 2019, the hospice nurse called my mother and said, good news. Larry's well enough that we are discharging him. This was not good news. Although my stepfather's symptoms had started 10 years earlier, it had only been two years since he had been diagnosed with a rare neurodegenerative disease, multiple system atrophy, and not yet six months since he had been admitted to hospice after a hospitalization. Similar to Parkinson's disease, multiple system atrophy includes profound autonomic dysfunction and problems with muscle control and coordination. Unlike Parkinson's disease, multiple system atrophy has a prognosis of five to nine years and rarely includes cognitive impairment. As with other serious illnesses where people are living while dying, best practice in care for neurodegenerative disease incorporates palliative care from diagnosis onward. Yet where Larry and my mother lived in Florida, home-based palliative care was not available and hospital-based palliative care was available only to people with cancer. We knew Larry would likely need hospice at some point. The question was always when. Unbeknownst to me, doctors had been gently recommending hospice to my parents for months. Before his hospitalization in late 2018, Larry was six foot two, 187 pounds, and could walk through the house with a wheeled walker and my mother's stabilization, although he fell many times a day. To get around the house, he reluctantly used an electric wheelchair and wheelchair van. In 2018, an intense Florida red tide algal bloom released aerosol toxins and caused Larry such respiratory irritation that he began to drown in his own secretions, resulting in a week-long hospitalization. When he was discharged, home health agencies couldn't get us the equipment needed to manage his symptoms at home fast enough. My parents were finally willing to consider hospice when Larry's primary care physician said the words end-stage disease on speakerphone. I have researched hospice and palliative care, both the models of care and the organizations that provide it, for years, including working in a community-based hospice. 
My mother's most recent experience with hospice had been my grandmother's death five years before. We both thought of hospice as the best option for end-of-life care with interdisciplinary support for the family in any setting. According to federal regulations, hospice focuses on optimizing quality of life and minimizing sources of distress by providing 24-7 access to medical care, routine visits from nurses, social workers, chaplains, and home health aides, and home delivery of medication and durable medical equipment related to the terminal prognosis. Cost containment efforts during the creation of the Medicare hospice benefit require physicians to attest that enrollees are likely to die within six months and require that enrollees forego hospitalizations and treatments with curative intent, such as cure-oriented chemotherapy for cancer. In theory, hospice enrollees are entitled to an unlimited number of days of hospice care. In reality, regulatory changes and increased oversight have led many hospices to preemptively disenroll patients before recertification of hospice eligibility at 180 days of service. Larry wanted to be at home. We were prepared for his functional decline and anticipated that he might die within weeks of the hospitalization. For a few months, family or friends stayed full-time to help. But with a new regimen to support his lung function, Larry's strength improved enough that he could assist with transfers from bed to electric wheelchair to toilet, making it possible for him to stay at home with only my mother's full-time caregiving. Yet the overall picture was still one of decline. During his hospice enrollment, he began using his electric wheelchair all the time in the house until he needed my mother to drive it for him. As he increasingly choked on solid foods and aspirated liquids, my mother adjusted his diet. When the mechanics of eating became too challenging, my mother used her finger to help him move food around his mouth. Our best guess is he lost 30 pounds in the six months after hospitalization. Larry's trajectory of variable decline, or what I now think of as punctuated equilibrium, clashed with hospice. Although a six-month prognosis is required for hospice eligibility, it is often brink-of-death care. More than a quarter of hospice enrollees receive care for less than a week before death, and the median length of stay is only 18 days, according to a March 2020 report from the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, or MedPAC. The narrative among many hospice clinicians, which is echoed by family surveys, is that care is often initiated too late. Many hospice professionals say that three months of care or more would be ideal to benefit from the interprofessional team's efforts to optimize quality of life. Both our experiences and my research indicate that the culture and regulations of hospice in the United States have not caught up to this aspirational narrative of optimizing quality of life for a longer period before death. The hospice we worked with was best suited to helping people who are actively dying or ready to die, not those who are reluctantly dying. Our family efforts to maintain Larry's function, which allowed him to remain at home and help him enjoy life while it lasted, made the disconnect between hospice's words and practice apparent. We had several examples. One involved getting Larry access to a costlier, but for him, more effective medication. Multiple system atrophy results in constipation when slowed signals from the brain to the colon result in mistimed muscle contractions. After years spent trying every possible bowel regimen, Larry found only the new long-acting treatments, such as amatiza, worked. 
Insufficient management of his constipation had led to at least three emergency department visits in the two years or so before he entered hospice, with each emergency department visit following days of being unable to urinate as a result of the degree of blockage. Because they receive a per diem payment, hospice organizations need to manage costs so that clinician time, medications, durable medical equipment, and any other services are equal to the payment. Hospices with large daily censuses can use population management techniques to gain more flexibility in right-sizing care, using patients whose needs are less expensive than the per diem to balance those who need more costly care. Constipation from opioids is a common hospice symptom that is often resolved with inexpensive treatments, so our hospice did not want to approve amatiza. If Larry had been imminently dying, the effectiveness of the bowel regimen would have mattered less. It took months of arguing, paying for the drug out of pocket, and ultimately appealing to the executive vice president of the hospice organization to get Larry the appropriate care. In another example, Larry developed pressure ulcers from his time spent in the wheelchair. The hospice physical therapist recommended a special cushion, but the organization wouldn't pay for it, although they had boasted about their wound care at enrollment. The hospice nurses said, that happens, and recommended morphine instead of a wound consult. This may have made sense if Larry had had other sources of pain or was expected to die within days. Instead, Larry experienced substantial pain and discomfort for months, while we advocated to obtain adequate bandages and oversight from a wound specialist. In addition, although the hospice encouraged the use of in-hospice respite care, which provides caregivers a temporary break from caregiving, Larry's wounds dramatically worsened during his time in the hospice inpatient unit while my mother took her short break. He came home with injuries from improper use of his bi-level positive airway pressure machine and his catheter. Because he was never allowed to bear weight during his five-day stay in the facility, he also had substantial functional decline that made it much harder for my mother to care for him at home and made home less safe for both of them. Hiring additional paid caregivers was not a financial option for them. Thankfully, Larry slowly regained strength and function over the subsequent weeks. Larry was discharged alive home from hospice a few days shy of six months after his admission in August 2018, before reaching the 180-day threshold. I had talked to my mother about the possibility that he could stabilize and be discharged, ceasing any care other than what my mother could provide. So she researched the signs of decline in multiple system atrophy specifically and benchmarks for hospice recertification generally. She tried to draw the hospice nurse's attention to Larry's weight loss, decreasing ability to stand independently or support his own weight, more frequent falls in bowel incontinence, and declining ability to eat independently, chew, or swallow. Perhaps they did not listen. Perhaps they simply did not document his decline. A case manager reviewing his charts confirmed they did not document his weight loss. Or perhaps the hospice nurses discounted the signs of deterioration because they did not witness the increasing efforts my mother had made to get Larry out of the house and into the wheelchair and van. After all, he was not their more typical hospice enrollee with cancer. Perhaps they were simply providing suboptimal hospice care. Without much warning, the nurse called and said, Larry is discharged. We will come by with papers to sign tomorrow and pick up the equipment soon after. The care transition was traumatic. 
The next six weeks were filled with efforts to enroll in skilled home health, which did not cover the most needed service and aid to help with bathing, replace medical equipment, and engage in what we jokingly called Medicare revenge spending, ambulatory visits with Larry's primary care provider and specialists, including his neurologist, urologist, and pulmonologist. Mom and Larry retold their stories dozens of times to new healthcare professionals. The pulmonologist quipped, didn't die fast enough for them, huh? The major causes of death in multiple system atrophy are sudden death, aspiration, pneumonia, urinary tract infection, or wasting. Any day could have been Larry's last. Six weeks after Larry was discharged, he sharply declined in conjunction with what we assume was an infection. My mother fought my recommendation to re-enroll him with hospice, so deeply had they broken her trust. My hospice and palliative care colleagues assured me that re-enrolling was the wisest path, but looking back, I still second guess. My mother and I spent valuable time and emotional energy handling the re-enrollment with the only hospice in the area. The staff seemed blithely unaware of our feelings. Hospice clinicians gave Larry an enema that made him desperately ill for six days. He stopped eating and drinking. The counterfactual is unknowable but it is clear that hospice failed their mandate to reduce suffering. Larry died six weeks later, April 2nd, 2019, nearly eight months after his initial hospice admission in August, 2018. All humans die, yet existing systems fail to make dying and bereavement less terrible. Hospice developed as an alternative to a death-denying hospital culture an interdisciplinary care model to serve the patient and family at the end of life. But it has evolved into a business that relies on the extensive unpaid labor of family caregivers and the associated costs to their physical, mental, and financial well-being. Between 2000 and 2016, the use of hospice doubled while Medicare payments for hospice increased sixfold, according to a 2018 MedPAC report. MedPAC also reports that almost 70% of hospice organizations were for-profit in 2018, and others note that private equity firms are increasingly investing in the hospice market. There are also widespread and ongoing concerns about the quality of care in hospice. Market forces and regulatory oversight may pressure nonprofit organizations to act like for-profits or to disenroll long-stay patients for fear of withheld payments. The actions of Larry's nonprofit hospice diverged from the ideals of the hospice philosophy, yet accorded with the incentives of the Medicare hospice benefit and oversight. The hospice philosophy aims to provide whole person care tailored to the preferences of patient and family to relieve suffering throughout the dying experience. The benefit was designed around the relatively predictable course and symptoms of people dying of cancer, shortened prognosis with intense pain. Yet the vast majority of Medicare beneficiaries die of non-cancer serious illnesses. Capitated payments for all-inclusive care incentivizes cost minimization, as we experienced when Larry's hospice declined to pay for expensive treatments such as amatiza and the wheelchair cushion, despite their palliative benefit. Payment reforms are being attempted, but regulatory oversight intended to minimize inappropriate enrollment of low-need patients with prognoses longer than six months to boost profits has sometimes instead led to the early expulsion and abandonment of people with long trajectories of functional decline and hard to predict life expectancies. 
Although I fundamentally believe that my hospice colleagues are committed to caring for people such as Larry and anyone with a serious illness, the defaults and policies do not facilitate optimal care for the modern population of enrollees. Although many hospice enrollees die too quickly, and this is a separate and valid concern, 20% of hospice enrollees received care for longer than six months in 2016 to 2018, and 17% were disenrolled while still alive, according to a 2020 report from the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Enrollees with neurologic conditions have the longest average length of stay and the second highest rates of live discharge, according to the 2020 MedPAC report. Yet this is the best option available. End-of-life care is consistently rated higher when hospice is involved, and no other existing Medicare benefit provides sufficient long-term interdisciplinary care, including integrated medical, functional, and social supports through the end of life wherever a person calls home. The chasms of care are wide for the reluctantly dying. We need an alternative. No revolt can come from the dying, their caregivers, or the recently bereaved. Their energies are otherwise occupied. It falls to those of us left behind to advocate for policy change and models of care that mitigate rather than exacerbate the challenges of dying. One option would be to build a payment model for care that supports both patients and caregivers in the months and years before hospice eligibility. Potential seeds for this model include the home-based primary care program within the Veterans Health Administration, Medicaid's program of all-inclusive care for the elderly, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Independence at Home demonstration, and a proposed community-based palliative care demonstration program. Each of these models would have required adjustment to have been relevant to our family's situation. Larry was not a veteran, and he needed care informed by the approaches from both palliative care and geriatrics, as well as aid services, durable medical equipment, pulmonary expertise, and wound care. He and my mother needed care continuity, as well as to be recognized as experts in their rare disease experience. They needed ways to easily add additional layers of support as their care needs grew. Another policy option would be to change the existing Medicare hospice benefit to better match the characteristics and needs of beneficiaries. Changes would include removing prognostic requirements, facilitating payments for treatment with palliative benefit, even if expensive, adding more support from aides for personal care, adding more explicit support and care for family caregivers, and training hospice staff to care for a broader array of diseases. Given that nearly three-quarters of hospice enrollees are older than age 65, this training should include an emphasis on principles from geriatrics, such as minimizing functional decline, promoting adaptation, and managing multimorbidity. Such changes would likely increase the cost profile of hospice, but also simultaneously reduce costs in other areas of Medicare while decreasing often ignored costs to family caregivers. We will all die, and if we are fortunate, we will do so at advanced age. Self-interest alone should support the availability of high-quality, evidence-based, culturally humble end-of-life care that can be tailored to the preferences and needs of those affected. As a model of care in the United States, Hospices remain hobbled by efforts to minimize costs to Medicare. It is perhaps the only model of hospice in the world that asks physicians to guess whether or not a person will die in the next six months. The costs accrue to all of society. We simply do not measure them. Change is needed for hospice, or its alternative, to reach its promise of helping people live well, however slowly, 
they are dying. That was Krista Harrison reading her essay, The Hidden Curriculum of Hospice, Die Fast, Not Slow. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.